Hi, everybody. Welcome back to It's Not Magic, our podcast from Sixth Street. Over the past 12 episodes, we've spoken to incredible leaders from across business, government, academia, and the nonprofit world. They've tackled big, complex tasks and survived to tell the tale. We're kicking off season three with another one. Take a listen. The interesting problems live in those interstitial spaces between fields at the intersections and the nexus. And so you need to bring fields together. Part of that is bringing scientists who speak different languages uh, in the sense of technical parlance. But you also need to think about different ways of supporting with uh, research funding, um, teaching with different academic models, and really knocking down the old silos of disciplines and thinking about a convergent approach to teaching and to doing research. That is Frank Doyle. He's the dean of the John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University. He's been the dean of Harvard's engineering school since 2015. It's actually been announced that he's leaving Harvard at the end of this academic year to serve as the 14th provost of Brown University in Rhode Island. Frank is super interesting. He's a chemical engineer by trade. His research as a scientist has been focused on diabetes, and he's maintained an active lab at Harvard working on the development of an artificial pancreas to help regulate blood sugar levels. We'll talk about that with Frank. He's also an NCAA-level soccer official, a competitive sailboat racer, and an all-around nice, interesting guy. Here's the theme of the episode. The student body of Harvard today is about 25% engineering students. That's incredible for what many consider one of the preeminent liberal arts institutions in the world. That's up from single digits not too long ago. And a lot of that shift, we'll hear this from Frank, has been about a favorite theme of ours at Sixth Street, knocking down silos. We talked to Frank about how Harvard has broken down the barriers between disciplines with an acknowledgement at the institutional level that ideas and paths and studies and research all converge. We'll discuss Frank's push on a mindset shift when it comes to interdisciplinary study, the game-changing funding of the engineering school received from a non-engineer, and Frank will also teach us how to give a player a yellow card the right way. Turning Harvard into an engineering school may actually be rocket science, but it's not magic. Frank Doyle, thank you so much for being with us on the podcast. It's great to have you. My pleasure to be here. Before we get to when you got to Harvard, I'd love to talk about the history of the engineering school, engineering discipline at Harvard, which goes back a long way. And I guess is one way to look at that, it's sort of a, it's been an ongoing, let's just say, conversation debate about specialization versus being interdisciplinary and thinking more broadly about stuff. Or is that is that not a good lens? Yeah, you know, it's it's a great question. I, I'd like to refer to us as a 176-year-old startup, which, you know, most people think is crazy. But we've been teaching engineering at Harvard since 1847. Uh, so we have been around that long. As a school, we've only been around for 16 years. So we elevated in, you know, Harvard parlance to a capital S school in 2007. And in the intervening period, there were a lot of twists and turns, and a lot of gyrations around more applied directions, engineering directions, and I think really a bit of an identity crisis, if you will. Frankly, there were, I think, 10 or 12 different names that the entity was known by over that period. But we've really anchored on the name Harvard John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences. I mean, at one point, Harvard, I think I had this right, Harvard and MIT merged their engineering schools? There is a fascinating history. If you go back uh, beginning of the last century, um, there was interest uh, really from the Harvard side in pushing 
this engineering enterprise down the proverbial river uh, to be managed by MIT. And I think there was a, a sense at the time that the more applied fields of engineering and applied sciences tainted, and that was the word that was used, tainted the liberal arts mission of Harvard. And so there was a very brief period where there was, in fact, a merger. You can go back in the old Boston Globes and find it, the Harvard Tech merger. Uh, but it eventually got thrown out by a judge because it was deemed that the merger violated the terms of our principal endowment, which was to train engineers broadly. The endowment of, of, of the engineering school. Of the engineering school, yeah. So n- not for any kind of principled or pedagogical reasons. It was more, uh, I mean, I guess that challenge was brought for those reasons. But I, I, My understanding was the family of the donor brought the suit because the spirit and, in fact, the, the wording of the gift was this very broad training, which you can find at a liberal arts campus. But the, the supposition was that that did not exist at MIT with profound respect and appreciation for my colleagues <laughs> on the other side of town. My own brother is a faculty member. There, so a lot of respect for MIT. Oh wow, that, that was supposed to be interesting family conversations. Okay, so the school gets elevated to a separate school in 2007. You get there in 2015, around the time that you mentioned John Paulson, he made a, a transformational, something like 400 million dollar gift or something like that. He's not an engineer, is he? He's not an engineer. He's a graduate of the business school, and I think his gift, aside from the obvious, you know, financial impact on the school was profound for another reason, which was it really broke the mold at Harvard of individual donors only supporting their uh, graduating constituencies. So in his case, the business school, he reached out across those traditional boundaries and said, you know, as a business school alum, I see a return on my investment really paying off with this gift to the engineering school. So it really helped um, break down the barriers between the schools and and promote what our former president, Drew Faust, used to um, promote as one Harvard. Well, can we talk about that? I've heard you in different contexts talk about convergence. Why is that important? This seems like, I mean, completely up your alley, obviously. So what, what, why is that important? Yeah. So there, there are some really, really smart people in the Boston region who've been promoting this uh, before I got here, certainly. And the idea is the following, that the exciting problems, the interesting questions that we're all grappling with don't live in traditional disciplines. They're not squarely centered in, for example, my own field is chemical engineering. Chemical engineers are not going to solve all the great problems of the world alone. The interesting problems live in those interstitial spaces between fields at the intersections and the nexus. And so you need to bring fields together. Part of that is bringing scientists who speak different languages uh, in the sense of technical parlance. But you also need to think about different ways of supporting with uh, research funding, um, teaching with different academic models, and really knocking down the old silos of disciplines and thinking about a convergent approach to teaching and to doing research. So you get there. What, what was the first thing you did? You know, it's interesting. I, I was reflecting on that. I went back and I found my old calendar. Thank God for Google calendars. <laughs> and literally, uh, the first week I got here, I jumped on a train. And I went down to Yale. Now, that may surprise you. But the reason <laughs> I went down to Yale is there was a summit. There was a convening of the Ivy League engineering deans. And I have to say, over now, my eight-year tenure as an Ivy League engineering dean, that has been one of the greatest support mechanisms that I've enjoyed as a leader, to be together with peers from you know, ostensibly rival institutions, but we're all after a, a higher goal of academic advancement. 
And so this group would get together and share best practices. And of course, we have to be mindful of antitrust and those kind of issues, but really sharing practices that are of a proverbial high tide nature, right? They raise all boats. And that was um, really eye-opening for me, was to learn from these more senior deans. And now as I reflect eight years in the role, I think it's accurate to say, I think I'm tied for the oldest of the current <laughs> engineering deans in terms of time on station. And I feel over the past several years that I've been sharing and giving back to the group. In the beginning, I was uh, taking and learning, and now I'm giving back. So that was literally my first orientation to the job was going to, to meet my peers. So is there a convergence, so to speak, among those institutions where everybody's kind of doing what you've been doing at Harvard? Or is there a kind of a circuit split within that group? Maybe we shouldn't be working across these disciplinary lines. We need to concentrate on hard disciplines, make sure we have departments, because without that, those building blocks, there's no interdisciplinary work at all. Like, is there a debate or is it kind of everybody's singing from the same? You know, I would say it's a great question. There are variations on the theme, I think, for... um, In large measure, they're all on board with breaking down barriers and doing interdisciplinary research. I think most scientists are. Um, I think how one practices that, supports that, enables that is different campus to campus. Uh, For example, at Harvard, we don't even have departments. So the traditional building blocks of academic institutions, we didn't put together here. We deliberately made our ecosystem porous, permeable so that we weren't entrenched in some of those traditional boundaries. Not all of the Ivy Leagues chose to go that route. Some have what they call areas or fields, but many have departments as well. Are you swimming against the tide of human nature? I mean, some institutions I've been in, whether it's schools or for-profit firms, business firms, law firms, like some of them advertise, listen, we, we really don't have walls up. We don't have, uh, you know, clear lines here. We want you to be cross-jurisdictional, cross-disciplinary. Some people don't do well in that environment. Those folks just like, hey, you should go somewhere else. Or how do you handle that? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one, certainly. So um, for the most part, our faculty are very supportive of this idea and, yeah. and feel that we derive great benefit. Because, again, the interesting things we work on, take, for example, uh, robotics. Robotics doesn't uniquely live in just mechanical engineering or just material science or just computer science or electrical engineering. Frankly, bioengineering, we do medical applications with robotics. So the fact that we don't force a pigeonhole kind of arrangement for the program means those faculty can derive full benefit of the ecosystem that spans across all these different fields and attract students from all those different areas and teach in the curriculum across those areas. I mean, we have a similar orientation in our business where we want people thinking across those lines. And and you said it so well at the beginning that that's where interesting solutions to hard problems lie or sort of in, in, in the interstices. But it's one thing to say it. How do you reinforce it? Do you have to incentivize it? And how do you do that in, in academics? Yeah, I mean, there are a couple of different ways you can think about it. Uh, certainly incentivizing is something that's in the let's say, the power at the level of a dean to be able to do so you can seed initiatives. So a great example of one that I seeded early on my time here, together with the dean of science and the provost office, we decided that quantum was going to be a really powerful field we wanted to promote. Now, just by the very name, quantum isn't a traditional engineering or science department, right? For some people, right away, the notion of physics comes to mind. For others, maybe computer science comes to mind, double E, you know, so forth. So by seeding directly in the interstitial space, if you will, 
we created the, the nucleating agent, the, the agent that attracted folks to come across from EE and applied physics and physics and chemistry and, and joined together in a unit that defied boundaries by its very nature. And so by doing that at the leadership level, two deans and a provost, we set the stage. And now, you know, a handful of years later, we've got a, an interdisciplinary PhD program called Quantum Science and Engineering. We have the beginnings of what might be an undergraduate program. We have a, a vibrant research effort, including partnerships with big companies like Amazon Web Services. So it was, uh, if you will, a bet, but a bet that paid off by investing in that sort of boundary space. People should look at your, we'll put it up on the thing, the the school's um, mission and vision statement. It's very short. It's very powerful. And one thing I noticed was that the first prong of vision is being diverse and inclusive. And of course, you'd expect to see that these days, and you should see that these days on, on everybody's uh, on everybody's mission and vision statement, but it's first. Is that, that felt intentional to me. Yeah, it did. I, absolutely. And, and frankly, one of the, um, you know, I'm going to say second or third, depends how, how long a list we make, things I did as dean was to convene a, a group of faculty, students, staff, alumni to really work hard on the mission statement and craft something that we could wrap our arms around, we could own, was to some level uh, DNA specific to the school. So it was very unique to us. And I have to say the, um, the concept of community, of inclusion, was front and center. It was from the very beginning something we were very proud of that we wanted to promote. And in the end, we, we did craft, I think, a, a marvelous mission statement. We, in our new building in Austin, it's emblazoned on a giant wall. So as you walk in the building, there it is, front and center. That's cool. And it really reminds people that's why we are coming to work. That's why we're coming to study, to do research. Uh, we have that sort of guiding principle. One thing that we always debate in our firm, it's an investment firm, is can you teach this idea of continuous learning, which I know is very important to your school and, and to you, how do you teach that? How do you how do you get people excited about that? Or is that is that innate? I would say it's, if I could dare say this, it's easier in a technology field hmm. because the fields change so quickly, right? You think about the AI space, right? Just look at the time scale over which things like chat GPT are are generating the land or, or dominating the landscape. Um, so I think the very dynamic nature of most fields within technology really demand that people want to keep their finger on the pulse. They want to stay fresh. They want to come back and learn the latest. And so as we've launched things like exec ed programs or we've put content out on edX, we really have had no trouble attracting learners, lifelong learners, to come back and refresh, renew, stay up to speed with the latest tech. Maybe combining those two, those two ideas, both having a diverse and inclusive environment and also having continuous learners, one thing that our industry has struggled with and not struggled with, but has had to do is go further upstream in terms of where the talent is. Because if we rely on the pipelines that generate talent, they're kind of well-worn and they aren't necessarily focused on equity. And so as you go further up the pipeline, you got to go to school and you got to train people and you got to turn people's heads to your industry, to your business, to this is a good way to make a living and actually super interesting. And we want more smart people to think about our field. Are you doing that too? Are you advertising or marketing in, in, in an appropriate way at, at the K through 12 level to get people to think about the sciences, about engineering, about applied science? 
Absolutely. You've put your finger on, I think, the, the big challenge to increasing diversity across the, the engineering space, the student recruiting. And it is going upstream to K through 12. We know that the interest is more or less uniformly spread across gender and, and racial and, yeah. and ethnic groups early in that pipeline. But at some point along the way, opportunities are not as evenly distributed. And all of a sudden, we now have this cohort that is unfortunately, to this day, dominated by white men. And so our ability to influence that, to get faculty in the schools, to do outreach, to have students go out there, to have our student affinity groups be very active in working with high schools, middle schools, eventually elementary schools, is a critical part of enriching that pipeline. Yeah. Are you seeing results? Like what's been working and what's, what, what, it's an ongoing effort for all of us, I know. It, it will be a never ending effort. It's a constant yeah. effort. Um, and I'd say, yeah, we have moved that needle. We, um, I can remember a conversation I had with our president when, we, uh, when I first started at Harvard. Um, and she said, Frank, talk to me about the gender balance in engineering at Harvard. And I said, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And I said, the, uh, the good news is we make the top 10 of national engineering programs with our fraction of women. And I said, the bad news is we break into the top 10. And I think at the time it was something like 30%. 30% women put you in the top 10. Yeah. Now, this was eight years ago. Miraculously, the fields have advanced. We've done better with recruiting. The classes are more diverse. Today at Harvard, it's 38% women in the cohort and climbing towards the 40s, I think, in the next batch or two. Uh, nationwide, it's still hovering around the mid-20s for fractional women. So it's, as you say, it's an ongoing challenge we've got to keep working on. Yeah. By many measures, your tenure there has been unbelievable. There's something like you've gone from single digit percentage of undergraduate majors in your school to, I think, over 20 percent. And I'm sure across a lot of other metrics, you know, it's just been incredible, which you should talk about it if, if you want. I'm interested in what what would you get wrong? What would you do differently? Hmm. Great question. And yes, you're, you're right. We have moved into now we're 25 percent of the student body here at Harvard, which you know, blows the mind of a lot of our alums who can remember back when we were truly a blip on the radar, 5% of the student body when the school started. Um, so we've done a lot. We've moved forward in, in amazing ways. I think the big challenge ahead for Harvard, for engineering, is activating the space that we've moved to on the Alston side of the river. So we've made this jump. We've moved across the river to be next to the business school. We're near the athletic complex. Those folks got here a century before we did. So they've been here 100 years. So it's not exactly that we're the pioneers in Alston, but about a century past where now we are the new wave coming across. And I think it's incumbent on the, the faculty, the chairs, the next dean to continue to build out. It's uh, probably a fairly well-known fact that Harvard actually owns more land on that side of the river than they do in Cambridge. Oh, wow. So. So when the fit out of that side of the river is complete, the center of gravity will shift. At some point, the Harvard Business School, which many view as the southern frontier right now, will be the center of gravity of the, the Harvard footprint. Very cool. You said at the beginning, chemical engineers are not going to solve problems alone. You're a chemical engineer. Like, Was there an aha moment? You're like, I got to think bigger 
interdisciplinary. Was this always part of your DNA, so to speak, just to mix, uh, to, to go, to be interdisciplinary? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you, you've uh, touched uh, closer to the truth than you might realize. So my, my brother's a chemical engineer, my father's a chemical engineer. So certainly there's almost a DNA like element of this. <laughs> uh, but I would say early in my academic career, I got exposed to uh, working on the problem of diabetes. Uh, literally, my first year at Purdue University as a junior faculty member, a colleague came down the hall and said, this would be an interesting problem for you and I to think about. A real, um, for those of you that are old enough to remember, uh, the graduate, uh, you know, that moment with the, the prompt about polymers, the prompt I got was about diabetes. <laughs> just just for the for the old enough people, it didn't say, it didn't say polymers, it said plastics, just to plastics. translate, just to trans yeah. translate from the chemical engineer. <laughs> That's amazing. Thank you. You're absolutely correct. Yeah, you can count on me for movies and nothing else in, the, in, in this conversation. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. So, you know, as I um, now have had a 30-year career working in diabetes, I very early on, very quickly recognized that there's there are algorithm solutions that can be brought to technological innovation. There are materials innovations. There are, you know, electrical engineers, applied mathematicians, biomedical engineers, and of course, endocrinologists and medical doctors. So early, early in my career, I began to sink my teeth into a, a tough problem that right away revealed the only way to make headway is to pull together multiple disciplines to tackle this hard problem. And th this is your work, work on, your ongoing work, I think, on the artificial pancreas. You should explain what that is because that's super interesting. Absolutely. So, you know, simply stated, the artificial pancreas is like a thermostat for the blood sugar in the body of an individual with diabetes. So they can set a target. And this device will automatically squirt the insulin to cope with the fact that they're eating food or they're exercising or their sleep cycles are disrupted, all the different stressors of the day that lead to fluctuations in glucose. This device automatically fine tunes that. It's it's incredible. When I tried to understand how that works, and you have some YouTube videos that make that actually clear enough for even me to understand it, there's this concept of sense and respond. This is your kind of area of engineering. Can you explain what that is? And, and then my follow-up question is going to be, are you using that method, the sense and respond kind of framework in organizational design? Mm, yeah, great, great question. So sense and respond is a very broad sort of way to characterize uh, feedback systems, systems that collect information, make measurements, the conjunction and is really where I live, and that's the sort of processing, the brains, the calculation piece. And then the respond is the actuation, delivering, changing, implementing something. You know, So if you think about, for example, driving a car, the sense and respond, you're looking out down the road, that's your sense. Your brain is processing that, transducing that into the steering wheel or the brake pedal or the gas, uh, and that's the response. Uh, so sense and respond is really a, a marvelously simple way to describe the complexity of feedback systems. And very much to your point, you can apply feedback not only to engineered systems, you can apply it to natural systems, you can apply it to uh, financial systems, the Fed and the, the, the money inventory could be described with these principles. Uh, you can also describe it to organizational principles and how you go about collecting feedback, interacting with groups, and implementing policy. And I, I will say, I think one of the most underrated and um, yet most powerful skills that a leader has is the listening skill, the sense part of that. Right. How do you train yourself to be better at that if you don't naturally have that skill? 
Yeah, you know, it's hard, especially for an Irishman, because we've got the gift of the gab. We're known for talking. <laughs> we're, we're known for the respond part, not the, the listening part. But it really is, I would say, in all aspects of a job like mine, listening is the critical skill. I need to, to hear from the students where the concerns are, where the, where the excitement is. Uh, both sides of the equation, if you will, hear from the faculty where their aspirations are, where they can be better resourced. When I'm out talking to alums and donors, listening to them, hearing and, and understanding their passion, all of those contexts, it's far better for me to be receiving information than me putting out information and talking. Speaking about the feedback loop, I'm, I'm oftentimes you hear about um Actually, one of the metrics of, of the success of the school is that I, I think you guys are generating, punching way above your weight in terms of how many uh, startups come out of your school. Maybe not surprising given the, the disciplines, but a little surprising just given given how much of the faculty you have, I think, of the overall university. But you often hear about like how industry is – you bring in some disciplines or some some methods from from industry into, into the academy to make it more efficient or to facilitate talking across jurisdictional lines or whatever – are there things going back into industry from your school or from, from other, other places in, in sort of the academy? Oh, without a doubt. In fact, I would say if I were to um, characterize the two pillars of my platform as dean, we talked about one and that was DIB. The other really is translation. The idea of taking the ideas that are happening yeah. in the benches, in the laboratories and bringing them out to industry. I can recall again a conversation with um, Drew Faust, the, the president who hired me at Harvard and Talking about industry, and uh, she had said, oh, you're looking for funding from industry. And I said, well, that might be number five on my list. And she looked at me kind of quizzical and said, yeah, give me four more reasons for doing that. And I went through a list that broadly included things like translating the research to go out and have impact in the real world, like inspiring our faculty to think about challenging problems that wouldn't necessarily leap out of a book or out of a computer, but a practitioner from industry could come in and say, here's where we're stuck. And then you have this marvelous partnership. And then, of course, for the students, the students want that real world experience. They want it in the classroom. They want it for networking. They want it for internships. So there's really this multifaceted partnership that is so powerful with the private sector and industry. Is that part of your job? You're, you're scanning the world thinking, gee, what complicated problems might we be able to uh, bring our, our resources to bear on? How do you select from among those? Yeah, you know, that's a, a really difficult part of the job, especially when you're in a program like ours, which is modestly sized, right? I've got order of magnitude 100 faculty here at Harvard in engineering. That's a third of an MIT or a Stanford scale campus. In fact, oh. my campus I started on, Purdue, had 100 faculty just in electrical engineering, wow. where I've got 100 across all of engineering. So we have to pick and choose. We have to find the problems where we can really go deep and have impact and then build up critical mass there. So I've, I've mentioned a couple already. Robotics is one. Uh, quantum science and engineering is another. Um, a third one that we just got a sizable investment in was AI, thinking about artificial intelligence from both the, the natural perspective, how the brain processes, and from the algorithmic perspective, how do you code these things and capture them in algorithms. And that's where uh, Mark Zuckerberg and Priscilla Chan came in and gave us a $500 million gift to build a big institute around AI. Not so bad. I'm interested, I feel like there's definitely an analog here to maybe your career, or maybe careers that you've seen. There are founders and entrepreneurs become good at something or they're good at something, whether it's 
coding or investing or whatever. And then you end up in these seats where you're running large organizations or you're, you're trying to scale yourself. And it's a very different skill set, whether it's managing people or understanding budgeting, being strategic, whatever. Did you come across at some point in your trajectory, you know, which in retrospect looks like, you know, you're just you're doing the next really big, interesting thing, but it doesn't feel like that at the time. Was there a moment where you're like, I actually don't know how to do X and I got to figure out how to do X um, or I'm not going to be able to go to the next step or, or accomplish what I want to accomplish. And if, if there was such a moment, what was X and how did you tag it? Yeah, I would say that um, in terms of my professional career as a, a university administrator, there was a moment back at Santa Barbara, my previous institution, mm-hmm. University of California at Santa Barbara, where I was very involved uh, with a center and we were gonna have a, a new building associated with that. And there were questions about fundraising and uh, Harvard has a certain apparatus a machinery for fundraising that's not matched at places like a public university like the University of California. Sure. Uh, and so really it, it was clear to many of us involved at that time that um, training in fundraising, in development, uh, was a critical skill that many of us lacked. And so we sought out and there was a a series of courses that we had an outside contractor come in and teach several of the leaders on the campus, okay, here's Philanthropy 101, Philanthropy 102, and so forth. And it really transformed how I began to then interact with alumni and potential donors. And I would say that was crucial to my evolution as a leader so that when I came into a place like Harvard where, you know, numbers one, two, and three on my my list in a given day might all be development related uh, was a skill I, I had to have. It wasn't a skill that I could build on the job. Yeah. I had to come in running with strong skills in that area. Yeah. Interesting. I feel like you're the perfect person to ask about sort of the individual habits of mind that one has to have in order to handle increasing levels of complexity. And maybe this is just that that's a very, very wordy way of asking, like, how do you manage your time? Do you have a system? Yeah, you know, a um, couple things. So I'm a, a big, big uh, subscriber to uh, Zero Inbox. I, I try to whittle down my email inbox to single digit. Uh, some days I could get it down to zero. So just process just delegate, answer, or file away, and to really try to be you know, ruthless uh, with time management that way, make decisions uh, on edge, as it were. Uh, in, in a whole different universe, I-, I uh, What does that mean on edge? What, what does that mean? That means uh, processing in real time, complex number of factors that require near immediate execution. So not take it home, study it, take it back for the weekend, review it, but in the moment, you've got to be able to pivot and and react quickly. And I think that's um, a skill. Some things clearly require deeper deliberation, but there are a lot of things at the level when many, many questions and, and decisions are flying at you. Um, you've got to make some of these things in real time with with agility. Okay, so zero inbox, and, and then that that does imply like the ability to know what to do with the with the in, incoming implies some kind of filter that you've thought about beforehand. That's right, and also involves a pretty good folder system in in my uh, my email client. Um, but it really the indecision um, is is something that I can't afford. I've got to make a decision, even if it means delegate or defer for longer term handling. It can't be, oh, I'll come back to it tomorrow when there's going to be 100 messages in my inbox or 500 messages in my inbox or whatever it might be. I think that's one. 
The other one I might um, point to is uh, building a powerful team. As I reflect on the kinds of things we've accomplished as a school during my tenure, it was hugely enabled by having the right people in place to work with me. And I think that's critical to know, first of all, how to build the right team, how to power that team, uh, how to strike the balance between delegating to team members and keeping an active hand in things. I think that tightrope that many leaders have to walk between, let's call it micromanaging versus pure delegation is a critical skill, a critical balance. And we all find a different sort of uh, fulcrum or balancing point there. But I think that's another skill that's crucial to be able to manage complexity at this scale. And have you have you worked on that skill or, or is that something you've been just good at? I would say I started far more on the micromanaging side of things, yeah. uh, certainly before my Harvard time, and realized it would be the end of me here if I continued to be a micromanager. I'd never sleep, but I'd never get things accomplished. I had to trust and build a team that I could then have them run and report back, partner, um, solve in the right sub-teams. Uh, but that certainly was an evolution of my kind of leadership skills. You're leaving Harvard um, at the end of the academic year. You're, you're headed to Brown as provost. How did you think about, I mean, both amazing institutions, all that stuff, but how did you think about that sort of next step for you? Like, what, why, is, why is that the next step? Yeah, great question. Uh, it was not obvious to me. And certainly last fall, I was not out there uh, looking or floating a resume or anything. I, I got a phone call from a very, very charismatic individual, the uh, current president of Brown, Chris Paxson who really over the course of several phone calls absolutely convinced me that there were exciting things happening. There was a critical role to fill. She would be an amazing partner. And I've often said, I've told a few people anyway, that um, Brown has a certain Goldilocks characteristic to it. There are exciting things happening. They're happening at a scale that's perfect at the provostial level to organize, to empower, to enable. Um, there's a great team in place there. And I got to say, the um, again, the growth or evolution of my leadership skills are really going to be tested when now the um, lens that I'm looking through is that of the entire academy yeah. and not just technology, right? I, I endearingly say that the engineering nerds are easy to work with. They're, they're my people. I know them well. <laughs> yeah. And now I'm going to be supporting performing arts, humanities, the you know policy and the social sciences, the med school, public health, a wide array of disciplines. So that's going to be daunting and challenging on one hand, but really exhilarating on the other hand. Yeah, it sounds pretty exciting. What, what's something that's that's coming out of CS at Harvard, whether it's a new technology or a, a joint venture with industry that you're like, that's super cool that you're excited about? Uh, the most exciting new thing we've done, and, and perhaps one of the really uh, painful things to have to leave behind, is we launched a new initiative this fall called GRID, G-R-I-D. It's not an acronym. It's uh, an entity like the power grid, the electric grid. It's an undergirding. It's an infrastructure for entrepreneurship. And the idea is a recognition that our students, our faculty, our postdocs are hungry for not only training in this space, for contact with experts in this space, and also for resourcing. We have an accelerator fund as well. So the earlier point we discussed about building skills, learning things, I'm finding that even a lot of my faculty are in that state of continuous education where somebody maybe mid-career who's never founded a company before suddenly gets involved in an idea in the lab, wants to do it, and doesn't know where to yeah. ramp up and learn the right skills. What's the most useful thing for that person in the lab to know that they didn't know before, do you think? 
I think it's to recognize that there are things they don't know that they need to address and, and learn. And they've got a peer group. We've got fellow faculty. We've got entrepreneurs and residents. We've got this ecosystem now we're building. And oh, by the way, it's across the street from the Harvard Business School. So we've got all those partnerships and collaborations and strengths to tap on as well. So I think that's uh, in many ways, you know, watch this space. That is the really exciting thing that will brand and power that Alston side of Harvard's campus, because, uh, you know, really it's the heart of innovation. It's where the exciting uh, future directions are going to come from. Frank, did you have a teacher in your background who just kind of lit you up when you were young to get you thinking about constantly learning and doing what you do? Is anybody you remember in particular? I'm going to go all the way back to eighth grade to sister Alice Francis. I I, uh, was trained in Catholic schools, uh, uh, first grade through 12th grade. And sister Alice Francis reached out to our elementary school. She was a high school teacher and said, I I want to attract some of you who are really hungry to learn more about math uh, to come to a Saturday school session. So eighth grade kids, you know, the ultimate nerd, of course, (laughs) there we were doing algebra in a series of Saturday classes. It was because we were hungry. We wanted to accelerate and advance. And Sister Alice Francis became just an amazing mentor to me during my four years in high school. I went to the high school where she taught. Uh, so I would, I would put my finger on that. That's cool. Um, you're a soccer referee. I am. You, you're, like in a, you're like you do NCAA soccer games. Is, did, did, how did you get into that? Yeah, um, I got involved when my kids started soccer. So way back in Santa Barbara, it was a rec league, which meant that you had parent coaches and parent referees. So the only way we could field a team is if two parents stepped up and said, yeah, we'll be a referee. And I remember signing up and thinking, oh, my kid's six, seven years old. How hard could that be? Turned out to be pretty challenging. But then (laughs) as my daughter got older, I challenged myself to keep refing at the level that she was playing in. And so, of course, eventually she got to high school. Eventually she got to college. Um, I will say in California, I didn't ref at the college level because there was only one university in town and I taught there, UC Santa Barbara. But then I moved to Boston and my gosh, we have 40, 50 universities throughout Boston. It became a great space for my, as I like to call it, my therapy. I was going to ask you, is, is it therapy or are you are you constantly trying to figure out an interdisciplinary approach to, to reference soccer games? <laughs> you know, all kidding aside, I have notes and an outline for a book I'd like to write one day on leadership skills I developed on the pitch. That's and cool. there really are examples from, you know, we talked earlier about complex decision making. I've heard a number of people describe being a referee as the following. Imagine doing 50-yard dashes. And having a giant flashcard in the audience pop up with a hard math problem, you've got to solve in half a second while you're doing 50-yard dashes, and the crowd is yelling the wrong answer. <laughs> That's what it's like to be a referee and do complex real-time problem solving. I, I will tell you, we have it in common. I was I was a soccer referee, but as I stopped, I was a high school kid, but I did have to red card a parent once. So if you're if you're looking for stories for your book, I'm happy to tell you that story uh, offline. There we go. There we go. Well, one of my examples I've got as a nugget for a potential chapter is how to deliver bad news. So I'm not sure huh. about your red card experience, but for example, if I give a yellow card to a kid on the pitch. There's a way you can do it where the kid walks away confident and proud. 
And it involves something like saying, hey, you and I both know you're a better player than that, but I got to book you. You know that you know, you're a better player and you hold up the yellow card and they walk away feeling, hey, the ref thinks I'm a good guy. Right. In organizations, we often have to deliver bad news and there are ways to deliver it to leave somebody sort of excited, engaged, thinking about coming back and trying again. And I think it's this art of how to manage the delivery of bad news. Where did you arrive at this insight in the workplace and applied it to soccer or vice versa? Honestly, I think it was in the soccer uh, context that just watching some other referees who like to just hold that card in the face of the kid and intimidate them or, 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 you know, embarrass them. And that just didn't advance the the game. That wasn't productive for the game. Amazing. Frank, you're also into sailboat racing. Tell me what that's all about. Yeah, so I, I grew up as a kid. In fact, uh, from the time nearly that I could walk, my father uh, was a sailor, had a boat, uh, built his first boat in our driveway. I remember that. So I grew up sailing with my family. I raced in college. Um, and then when I was a young faculty member and eventually an older faculty member, I used to race. And in California, that became really easy. And I would say the um, one of the great accomplishments of my racing career, we did the Transpac, which is a race from Los Angeles to Honolulu. Wow. And that was just uh, epic. It uh, At the time, I thought there was a lesson I would learn. I'm not sure that I, it really took, but it was the following, that it was a 10-day race. And within a day, you're far enough offshore, you've got no signal. So 10 days of no phone, no internet, none of the outside world distractions. And you know, when I got to port, when we finished the race, The world hadn't ended. People who didn't get answers to their emails, they figured out, they contacted somebody else or they solved their own problems. And I thought that would be a lasting impression. Sadly, I think I've lapsed back into real-time email processing, but um, that was one of the powerful messages for me in doing a race of that length was that you could disconnect and and come back, uh, recharge, rejuvenate it. One thing you said there really resonates. I took a sabbatical a couple of years ago, and one of the reasons to do it was that um, we have a great team and a lot of just the informational pathways not because of anything special i do but just because i've been here since the beginning um would go through me and we could break that a little bit by taking off uh, not being in the office for a couple of months and people were probably making better decisions and you know checking in with me on an exceptions basis and that that's the it's it's super it's a super important lesson the world the world doesn't end it's it's fine you'll be fine powerful lesson indeed yeah, totally yeah. uh thanks for that Frank, what a pleasure. No, the pleasure was mine. I really enjoyed this. You guys made it simple too. That was Frank Doyle, Dean of the John A. Paulson School of Engineering and Applied Sciences at Harvard University. Many thanks to my colleague, Vivian Lau, who's an alum of Harvard and has spent a lot of time working with Frank um, on a lot of initiatives there. We spoke with him on April 11th, 2023. As we said at the top, the biggest takeaway was Frank's focus and ability for promoting interdisciplinary connectivity across various fields and to promote collaboration across the university. It takes humility, a real selflessness to collaborate so successfully at that level. That may be Frank's superpower and it comes across talking to him. Let's all work together. It's a simple concept, but it's much harder to execute in practice than it sounds, especially in a very competitive environment. I also think Frank's own technical proficiency may have something to do with it. Someone like that being so willing to learn from others sets a really great example. He also talked about how important it was for him to surround himself with the right people. And finally, it was great to hear how Frank talks about balancing the different aspects of his life, including remaining involved in his long-term research on the artificial pancreas. It can be hard when you get to the management level to lose that, that hand on things. And it sounds like he's kept a pretty good sense of well-being around his management responsibilities, his technical skills and research, and his personal pursuits. 
Thanks to Frank for joining us. Good luck at Brown. We'll look forward to following your career there. And thanks to everyone for listening. You've been listening to It's Not Magic, a Sixth Street podcast. You can read more about our guests on sixthstreet.com and subscribe wherever you get your podcast. If you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it and follow at Sixth Street News on Twitter for more on the show and our firm. Thanks to Sixth Street's production team, Patrick Clifford, Ritvi Shah, with sound engineering by Stephen Cologne. Our theme song is It's Not Magic, an original song from Patrick Dyer-Wolf. Once again, I'm David Steepleman. Thanks for listening. The views expressed in this podcast are not necessarily those of Sixth Street, and Sixth Street is not providing any financial, economic, legal, accounting, or tax advice or recommendations in this podcast. In addition, the receipt of or listening to this podcast is not to be taken as constituting the giving of investment advice by Sixth Street. Please see additional disclosures on our website for more details. <laughs>